This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you have your Bibles, go with me today to the book of John. We're going to focus on John chapter 15 tonight. It's one of my all-time favorite texts. It's one of my all-time favorite parables that Jesus tells, and I think it's particularly relevant for us and the church right now. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to John 15. We're going to start right there in verse 1, and here's what it says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Say it with me, more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him or her, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Underline that tonight. Nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Therefore, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Say it with me, joy. God wants us to be a people of joy and not just ordinary joy, extraordinary joy. And I believe that in this next season, one of the things that's gonna mark the church is joy. I believe we've come out of a season with 2020 being a year of, in some ways, great mourning, great difficulty, great trouble, great persecution, great hardship, great heartbreak, great disappointment. I don't know how you went into 2020, but I can tell you I didn't go into 2020 thinking anything that was going to happen, happen. I didn't think any of that was going to take place. And I believe that however we entered that year, God wants us to enter this year with an expectation of experiencing his joy. Say it with me one more time, joy. And may God add a blessing to the reading of his word. I pray tonight, Father, that you would speak to us. That you would help us learn how to abide in you. And how to remain in you tonight. Amen. The title of my message, for those of you that are taking notes, is The Life of the Vine. And we pick up this story right in the midst of Jesus preparing his disciples for his soon coming departure. This is right before he goes to the garden at Gethsemane. And so he's preparing them for leaving them. He hasn't been arrested yet. He hasn't been tried yet. He hasn't been crucified yet. He's still with them, but he knows that his time with them is coming to an end. And rather than give them a big fiery speech about you only living once, 
He doesn't drop some YOLO on them. He doesn't say, I want you to go out and achieve your bucket list and get everything marked off of it. You know what Jesus says? Abide. Remain. Stay with me. Stay with me. Now, it would be easy for us, and it is easy for us when times get tough, to want to go, I'm going to get the heck out of Dodge, right? I'm ready for a vacation. I'm ready for a sulcation. I'm ready to just get to another destination. I'm ready to get away from my problems, from whatever it was that I encountered in 2020. But how many of you guys know that if you don't deal with it, it's going to follow you right into 2021? And here we are, almost March, right? <laughs> next, next, tomorrow. Next week, tomorrow. <laughs> and, and it would be really easy for us to want to escape. It'd probably be easy for the disciples here to want to escape. But that's not what Jesus tells them to do. He says, I want you to stay with me. I want you to abide in me. As Jesus has done often and throughout his ministry, he speaks to his disciples in a parable. He tells them this parable. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Underline that. He prunes it so that it may bear what? More fruit. Jesus begins this statement. Verse 1, I am the true vine. Implying that there are other vines. There are other options available to us. But they're not the true one. They're not the source that's going to give you the life that you're looking for. Certainly, they're not going to allow you to experience his joy and his love the way that you were created to. He says, my father is the vine dresser. And then Jesus confirms this and relates this all to being in him alone. He says in verse 2, if every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, my father, the vine dresser, takes that away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So right off the bat, we see the father as this vine dresser figure. Most of us don't live around vines or deal with viticulture, all right? I grew up in California, and one of the amazing things that I used to love to do was to go to the wineries because I got to see how wine was made. Anybody ever do that before? If you ever get the chance to go to Northern California and go to Napa or Sonoma or some of these places, it's amazing what they have done. It really is. And there are movies and documentaries about what has taken place over the last hundred years with regards to viticulture. That's the, the study of, of grapes and the way that, that we grow grapes and the way that they make wine. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so Jesus, knowing that they would be familiar with this kind of uh, analogy, this kind of example, uses this story as a backdrop, as a setup for what he's trying to lead his disciples into before he goes to the cross. Are you with me tonight? So he tells them this story. My father's the vine dresser. I'm the vine. You're the branch. Once again, vine dresser, vine, branch. You and I are all branches that find their life in the vine who is being attended to by the father. That's the picture. That's the setup. And in verse 3, he says, and guess what? You're already clean 
because of the word that I have spoken to you. What does he mean by clean here? He means that my father has already been pruning you through the words that I've been speaking to you for these last three and a half years. You've already been stripped. You've already been cleaned. Now, when Candace and I first moved in our home three years ago, we had raspberry vines. And it was amazing. But if I didn't go out and start to prune them, if I didn't clean them, if I didn't strip away the debris and the stuff that got in the way of the growth of the vine, guess what? Those raspberries were going to die off. And unfortunately, they did because my dogs ate them all. <laughs> and if you've met my dogs, you know why. <laughs> and so he says the Father has already stripped you. He's already made you clean. He's already been pruning you because of the word. Not because of your six-step program. Not because of the wisdom of a guru. Not because you read a whole bunch of self-help books or because you got really good at listening to the podcast. No, because of my word. And I believe in this season, God is trying to grab a hold of his church and shake us so that we can hear the words of Jesus again. Through the commotion, through the fog, through the stuff, the chaos, everything that's coming at us from all sides, God wants us to hear his word. Why? So that it can make us clean so that it can prune us, so that it can do a mighty work in us. Are you with me? And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 4 that I really want to key in on tonight. And he says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot, will not, ever bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in in me. The words are meno and ego. That's the Greek, and it literally means abide in me or remain in me. And friends, these are the words to every follower of Jesus. And they were the words to followers of Jesus then, and they are the words to followers of Jesus now. The calling, if you will, of every disciple, of every person who calls upon the name of Jesus is simply this to abide in him, meno and ego, to remain connected to, consistent with, committed to the vine. For many of us today, the temptation is not to meno and ego, it's not to abide in Jesus, it's to depart. When times get tough, things get hard, things aren't going to be popular for the church, the temptation is going to be to leave, to depart, to get away from the vine. But that's not what God is calling us to. We see this within our culture today, I think. We see people very non-committed, don't we? We live in this non-committal culture. We want connection without commitment. We want covenant without intimacy. We want relationship without cost. But to remain, to abide, to meno and ego in Jesus is to commit your life to him and to yield to the life that he wants to bring forth through you. It's typically why we see people in our culture perpetuate the casual hookup, the swipe right. It's this idea that nothing or no one is going to hold me accountable 
it's this idea that nothing is going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live my life apart from what anybody else says. And it's the opposite of what Jesus wants for us. It's the opposite of freedom. Today, I want to strongly suggest to us that all the things that we're really in pursuit of, hear me on this, the things that we really want, the things that we really want to grab a hold of and discover, our purpose, our life's meaning, even our joy, can only be found in a relationship with the true vine, Jesus. They can only be found in a life of abiding. Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me. We could even translate it to mean endure. Endure in me, and I will abide in you. I'll remain with you. I'll endure with you. A lot of times, we want to know where God is in the midst of a crisis, and God's been waiting for us to step back into the life of the vine. And we've been out here trying to do life on our own terms, apart from the vine. And we've got all of our systems and ways and philosophies and strategies and ideas about how our life should work because we want to manage it. We want to control it. We want to be the captain of our ship. And Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse five, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do zilch. Zero. Nada. We already heard it for our Spanish-speaking friends over here. Thank you for translating for Ernesto, too. We appreciate that. Jesus says, apart from me, all this other stuff that we give our lives to you guys, it's nothingness. I just made up a word. It's nothingness. It's futile. It's wasteful. And it's not going to end well. In fact, Jesus says it's going to end in flames. Jesus continues in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You see, when branches are dead and withered, the only real purpose left for them to serve is firewood. I usually like to take my kids camping once a year. And last year, we went up to Jordanelle. And we camped out there. And I brought a little stack of wood. And we burned through that really quickly. So I sent all three of my kids out to look for firewood. And I said, guys, when you go out looking for firewood, look for branches that are already cut off, that have already withered, that are already dry. Because guess what? Those make the best firewood. And so they did. They went out. They gathered twigs and sticks and brought some stuff back that was still wet and green that wouldn't work in the fire. Hear me on this. God didn't create you for the purpose of being dead firewood. God created you and he created me for the purpose of being alive and fruitful. We see this in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Guys, from the start, your life was always intended to bear much fruit. God has always intended it for your life to be fruitful and to multiply itself. This is the beauty of the way God created us. This is the beauty of marriage. This is the beauty of family. This is what God has always wanted from the very start 
that your life would bear much fruit. But isn't it interesting how we use that expression in our time today? Wow, that relationship really ended in flames. Wow, that contract we were bidding on, oh, that went up in smoke. Yeah, that relationship, yeah, with my ex, yeah, that really crashed and burned. It's almost like we have this inherent sense kind of weaved and built into us that fire equals destruction. Interestingly enough, when Jesus talked about hell, he often referenced a burning, fiery trash heap just outside the walls of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It's actually a place I've been to it. Gehenna was known as the place of destruction. It was where everyday people went outside of the city to burn their trash. You know, the stuff that we no longer find useful. In other words, it was where wasteful things were gathered together and burned. Do you see the picture here? Do you, do you see the backdrop against what Jesus is saying here? Well known to him well-known to the disciples, well-known to the people in their day, was an actual place where things were burned, discarded, where the withered things that produced no fruit, that were waste, were put together in a big heap and lit on fire. That's the imagery. And it's meant to startle us. It's meant to go, whoa! Like this life of bearing fruit is, this, is serious. It's not just uh, a game we play. Jesus affirms this, that there is no life apart from him. There's no life in this life or even in the one to come. Anything apart from him is considered waste. And the vine dresser in the story is going to remove it. And he's going to toss it into the fire to be burned. You see, guys, ultimately hell is not just a place of judgment. It's a place of gathered waste. And nobody ends up there because God intended them to go there, no, but rather because they chose to waste their life apart from the vine, apart from Christ and the life that he came to give. They chose not to abide in him. They chose to reject him and not to believe him at his word. Friends, I want to say this to us and anyone listening to this podcast tonight. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. There is no hope. There is no fruit. Because only a life of real and lasting fruit comes from abiding in the true vine. It's one of the last sermons that Jesus gives his disciples before he backs it up by going and laying his life down upon a bloody wooden Roman cross. Jesus is willing to die for what he says. And this is what makes him so unique. This is what makes Jesus so controversial. Because he doesn't provide his followers any other way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I think C.S. Lewis summed it up nicely in his book, Mere Christianity, when he talked about the choice that lies before us in beholding and making sense of these claims that Jesus makes. C.S. Lewis would say things like, a man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Some people look at Jesus as a teacher and they find comfort in his teachings. But C.S. Lewis says, a man who was simply a moral teacher wouldn't make these kind of claims. I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. He wouldn't tell the kind of stories about a vine dresser who removes things that are withered and broken and producing no fruit and throwing them into fire. 
He goes on. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You have to make up your choice. Either this man, this Jesus, this God-man is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and, call, and kill him. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Because Jesus didn't leave that way open to us. He did not intend to. It's pretty powerful. And I believe very true. Jesus didn't leave other options open to his followers. You either believe he was a liar, either Jesus lied about everything that he came and said, or you believe he was a lunatic, out of his mind, some crazy person. Because typically only crazy people consider themselves to be equal with God. They don't make the kind of claims that Jesus made before the Son of God, before the Son of Man was, I am. For Abraham was, I am. They didn't claim status equality with Yahweh. Or you have to come to peace with the idea, as many of us have in this room, that he is who he says he is. That he is Lord and God and King. And if you're convinced that he is, then you can get on with believing who he says he is and what that means for who he says you are. See, the implication for believing that Jesus is not lunatic or liar, but rather Lord, is that you begin to receive all of his thoughts towards you and what he says you are. The way that he reframes your life in light of what he came to do. He continues in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, wait a second. What do you mean, Jesus, whatever you wish? That seems to leave the door wide open. Indeed, it does. And that should exhilarate you. Maybe even shock you and terrify you a little bit. Are you sure, Jesus, about this whole whatever? I mean... How about just a few things? How about just a small list of things? How about we start with the small things? Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Seems like a lot of trust in the branches, in the disciples, in us, to ask. And it is. Because it implies that our asking actually changes. It implies that our asking becomes recalibrated and reshaped and transformed and renewed. There's the word we've been talking about. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, if you abide in him, meno in a go, and he abides in you and his words remain in you, the real question is what might you ask for? You see, if your life is abiding in Christ, it's like David in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. What shall I want? What do I need? It's all taken care of. So what might Jesus be inviting us to actually consider? That's what I want us to think about tonight. What kind of questions might we put to Jesus? And what might God be inviting you to consider in your partnership with him? We, we say at Courageous Church that prayer is powerful and that we're passionate about it. 
And it's powerful because prayer is partnership. A lot of P's, I know. And it's God inviting you into this reality. Whatever you ask for, if you abide in me, it will be done. It takes not just faith to pray that way, guys. It takes a bold and risky confidence that Jesus will actually back up what he says he will do. But some of us, we want the escape hatch. We want to be let out. We don't want to be held onto the hook. Well, if, if it be your will. God, if it's your purpose, if it's alignment. Of course, if it be his will. But guess what? Here's his will. Abide in me and I in you and whatever you ask for, it will be done for you. Could you imagine with me what the world would look like if we could grab a hold of that? If we could allow our asking, the kinds of things that we ask for, to move from being selfish in nature. God, give me a car, give me a job, give me a spouse, give me this, give me that. To, Father, may we tear down strongholds in your name. May the gods that have been exalted in this valley for 150 years come down. And may the name of Jesus be lifted up. What would it look like for a church to begin to ask those kinds of things in prayer? What would it begin to look like if you began to, instead of just going through the routine of all the things that you typically ask for, God bless this food, make it safe for my body, help my wife, help my friend. Help. What if we elevated it and we got beyond just the, the tertiary things and we begin to step into something that put a demand on us, that required us to become audacious, to ask for things that people would say, you're crazy to ask for that. Who do you think you are, Kimberly? Who do you think you are, Jonathan? Who, who, what gives you the right to ask for all these things in Jesus' name? And then for us to stand in fully confidence that our life is in Christ and Christ is in us, that we're abiding in him and that he's abiding in us. People don't know if it's Jesus or you because your life is so tangled up in him that you begin to ask with holy confidence, with divine audacity, Father, would you give us the nations would you give us a people that are passionate and sold out for you, that are tired of playing games with their life? Maybe if we begin to ask those kinds of things, maybe we'd see those kinds of results. How might God be inviting you to pray? How may, might God be inviting you to pray now that you know you have his ear? See, before you're in Christ... We prayed prayers like this, God, if you're out there, would you send me a sign? Would you let me know you care? Could you just throw a little money into my checking account for me? No, you didn't pray that way. That's how I prayed. Before we were in Christ, it's like, if, not sure, but now that we're in Christ, how might you pray? Know that God's ear is bent towards you that the vine dresser is attending to the life of his son, Jesus, who, by the way, is now sitting at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding, praying. What's intercession? Stepping into the gap on behalf of another, praying for someone else. That's the ministry of Jesus that he invites all of us to enter into. And you know how we do it? By abiding in the vine and embracing the life of the true vine who challenges us not to set the bar too low, but rather that we dare might set it too high. You see, there's a story in the New Testament where the disciples, and particularly Peter, are in a boat, and they're out at night, and a storm erupts upon the water, 
and it's shaking violently, and they think they're going to drown. Read it. And Jesus appears to them on the water, and he cries out, peace be still. And what happens? The waves cease. The winds cease. The storm stops. And Jesus enters into the boat, and there's different versions of the story. Some he's in the boat, some he's coming to them. But in this particular one, he enters into the boat, and he says, Peter, why are you, why are you so afraid? Why are you so bound up and limited in what you think I can do? Have you not been with me this whole time? Like, you're, you're my branch, boy. You're the one that I've just been so invested in. And you have my heart. You're my friend. Why are you so afraid? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Peter's got to be like, oh, man, you're right. And, and, and we hear this other story of Peter walking on water. And he gets out of the boat and he walks on waves. I don't know any of us have done that yet, by the way. If you have, come talk to me after the service. And Jesus, we, we would think that Jesus would be like, Peter, you did it. You took three steps and walked on water. But you know what Jesus does? He's like, oh, you have little faith. <laughs> Jesus, little faith. I mean, I stepped out. Remember the step? I took three steps before I sank. I mean, nobody else has done that. What do you mean little faith? Jesus' measurement is not our measurement. He's not impressed with what we think he'd be impressed by. You know what this tells me? This tells me that what he's looking for is for us not to set the bar too low and hope that things might work out, but to aim big and to aim high. Because if for Jesus, walking on water was just a, a matter of a little bit of faith, could you imagine what it would look like if a people like you and me, just ordinary folks, not superhuman, not super gifted, come on, some of you are, a lot more than I am. But what if we grabbed a hold of this whole ask whatever you wish in my name, it'll be done for you if you abide in me. See, Jesus is at the end of his ministry here. He's telling his disciples this. Guys, you've walked on water. You've cast out demons in my name. You've done all these mighty works and things. But to some of you, you know what's going to be said? Depart from me, I never knew you. Because only those who abide, meno and ego, in me, who remain in me, who endure with me. We'll see it through to the end. I want to pause right here just for a moment so that everyone can exhale. And I want to say this, to pray in the way that you know Jesus is going to give you whatever you ask for is risky business. Not because God is some cosmic genie in the sky like Aladdin, ready to bestow upon us three wishes. No. Not because he exists to meet our every demand. Absolutely not. We see later in James that you have not because you, you pray not according to his will, but because of your own selfishness. But because it means that we now have a responsibility, hear me on this, it means that we have a responsibility to steward this asking differently 
than the way that we used to. It means God has entrusted to you the ability to pray prayers like, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, that's not just a formula. It's not just a template. That is a way of life where you know because your life is in Christ and you're abiding in him, you're yielded to him, you're in him and he is in you and he is abiding in you and his words are in you that you can ask for anything you want and it'll be done. So how might we ask? How might we steward this responsibility as God's children to ask for things that change nations, that change people's lives? That's my hope for us. That's why we gather every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Because we want to grab a hold of this invitation. We don't want to squander it. We don't want to waste it. We don't want it to be said of our lives that we didn't take advantage of everything that Jesus gave us. And for some of you, that should be a wake-up call tonight who are just skating through life, who are hitting the snooze button every morning to go, it's time to wake up. It's time to have my thoughts renewed. It's time to be transformed. It's time to grab a hold of the new things of God that he wants to do in this valley and beyond. And that's our hope. Of course, we have to trust him with what we ask for, don't we? What, what, hap- what, what if people don't get healed? We pray for them. It's God's business. We're going to pray. We're going to shake heaven. We're going to ask. We're going to be audacious. Or did you think this was still about you? and your reputation. I met a man who laid hands on over a million people. Of the million people he laid hands on, a small few got healed. But you know what he said to me? Before I started laying hands on people, no one got healed. So then I started being audacious, started asking for things that were a little crazy, you know? And then people started getting healed. I trust God with my reputation, what people think. It's his business. And I would say that's the same to us. We have to trust him with what we ask for. And how do we spell trust? R-I-S-K. That's pretty good. You should write that down. (laughs) To trust anybody is to enter into a relationship of risk, right? Husbands and wives, when you say I do, you're risking something. You're risking your heart that that person is going to guard your heart and love your heart and cherish your heart, shepherd your heart, and protect your heart. You're risking the fact that they could also take a knife and stab it. Right? Some of you have had that happen. So I'm not here to denigrate that at all or diminish that. What I'm here to say is that relationships need risk. They require risk. And in the same way, our relationship with the vine dresser involves risk because it means we have to learn how to ask for things that we have to trust him with. We have to trust the Lord with these things. But I would say to us this, God believes in you a whole lot more than you believe in yourself. We see it all throughout scripture. Jesus sends the disciples out in twos, right? Remember this? To do what? Cast out demons. Any of you guys doing that this week? (laughs) To raise the dead? Anybody do that yet? Heal the sick? Anybody lay hands on heal anybody this week? Maybe a few of you. Jesus is risking his, his reputation as a, as a rabbi and as a Messiah and as, a, as God here and entrusting 
his ministry and his gospel and this good news and this power and this Holy Spirit and this asking and this abiding to people like you and me. And I know me. And I don't know if I would invest in me the way that God invests in me. It's okay. I'm not a scoundrel. But I know the inclination and proclivity of my heart apart from Christ, apart from abiding in the vine. And that's the temptation. And that's what we have to fight against. And that's what we have to be aware of. So why would Jesus do all this? Why would he make this his mission, his strategy, his focus to go and endure all this hardship and pain, to be killed and tortured and beaten? Why would he do all that on our behalf? Well, here's the simple yet very profound answer. Are you ready for it? He did it to bring the Father glory. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You guys, it's to the Father's glory and pleasure that you would bear fruit. You would grab a hold of this life of abiding. In other words, it pleases his heart to see you grab a hold of this life of fruitfulness. God's goal for your life has always been that you would be extremely fruitful. Not marginally fruitful, not casually fruitful, but extremely fruitful. In bearing fruit, we demonstrate that we are Jesus' disciples and followers, and we are made to experience the fullness of the Father's love. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So abide in my love, remain in my love, endure in my love. You guys, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. While we were yet hostile to the things of God and enemies of God, he died for us that we might experience the fullness, say it with me, the fullness, the fullness of the Father's love toward us. So how do we do it? That's the real question. How do we experience the Father's love? Oh, I wish there was an answer. Oh, there is. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, if you follow my teachings, if my words abide in you, you will abide in me. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You guys, the answer is simple, but it's not easy. To abide in Jesus is to obey Christ. But that's what we're called to. We see it in the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, and teach them to obey what Christ has commanded. We don't tend to focus on that part a whole lot. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is a life that's turned, a life that's abiding remaining, enduring, just as love endures all things. God has created us to endure all things when we trust his words, when we remain in them. We don't give up on the words of Jesus just because they're not cool or hip. We don't give up on Christianity just because it's not trending in the news, just because it's not with the popular party of the day. Come on, we develop a rich and deep history with God where we go down deep into the soil with him, where our lives are connected and bound up with Jesus in the vine, where we pray prayers that shake the heavens and the earth, and we ask for things that change other people's lives. And here's the kicker. As we land this plane, we get to do so from a place of joy. 
we get to do so from a place of joy. Verse 11, these things, all of this I have spoken to you. So Jesus is saying to us, let me sum it all up for you. Are you ready? Here it is. All of this I have spoken to you that my joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy which is our strength, come on, the joy of Jesus may be in you and you and you and especially Kimberly tonight. So that your joy may be full. How's your joy tonight? Is it full? Do you enter into this time with us with joy that's overflowing? Some of you, yes. Some of you, not so much. But the truth I've discovered is this. In abiding in Christ, his commandments are never burdensome. His commandments are never life-taking. They're always life-giving. But that's not what the world wants us to think. The world wants us to think that following Jesus is going to be burdensome and stressful and heavy and tough and fill in the blank. But Jesus says, if you abide in me, guess what? My joy is going to be in you and you're going to have it to the full. Jesus is in the business of giving us joy. And I said it at the beginning, but I really, really believe this, guys, that in this next season, the thing that's going to mark the church is not just perfect doctrine. It's not even how much we're going to feed the community. Come on. It's joy. It's having something that people don't have because you can't buy it. You can't put a price tag on it. You can't manufacture it. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm not talking about hype. I'm not talking about Jason Gunton up here and doing a big dance for you. No, I'm talking about Jesus's joy, the joy of the Lord, which he wants us to have and not just a little bit, but to the full. That's the invitation. God wants you and is committed to you experiencing joy. Now, for, for people that are in a bad mood and that are committed to a bad mood, that might not be good news. But for the rest of us, that should be good news. That means that each and every day, the choice is ours. What are you going to choose? A life of abiding where his joy gets to become yours? Or a life apart where you try to go out and do what the world says to counterfeit true joy? You see, happiness is different than joy. Happiness is based on what happens to you. That's actually where the word comes from, happenstance. If you're happy, things have been happening in your life and everything's going good and the stars are aligned and Jupiter's in its place and everybody likes you, right? But what happens when things go bad? Well, I'm no longer happy. Well, things aren't happening my way. I'm going to sit down and eat some worms because nobody loves me, right? Conditional, what happens to you? But you know what joy does? Joy elevates itself. If I could climb on this table, I would right now, but I'm not going to chance it. Joy elevates itself above happiness. And it says, guess what? You can choose. There's a choice available to you. I don't know if anybody told you, Stephen. There's a choice available to you. And it's not dependent upon what happens to you. It's not dependent upon what, what goes your way or doesn't go your way. It's a choice. What's the choice? Abide in me. Remain in me. Endure in me. Meno and ago, and my joy will be in you, and it will be complete, full, not lacking. Do you guys get the picture tonight? I hope so. As I've said this before, God is 
created you on purpose to know the fullness of his love, the fullness of his joy, and it's only going to happen in the life of the true vine. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.